0: This is where we remember truth, to make the world a better place, one person at a time. I'm Claire Lotier, Inspirational Speaker, Teacher of the Technology of Transformation, and a Certified Life Mastery Consultant and Spiritual Coach. Welcome to the Grace Space. This is it. This is the answer. I finally found the key to life. Soon everything will be okay. This is going to magically fix me and everything. Have you ever felt this way? Like you have finally found an answer to your questions out there somewhere. This is going to be the thing, a solution to your problems out there somewhere. A path that leads you to your pot of gold at the end of the rainbow out there in another place with different people. In the near future, just around the corner, you can feel it. It's coming. There's a feeling of excitement, optimism and adventure. This was how I felt as I prepared to embark on a new life of spiritual commitment. I was stepping into the river metaphorically and soon to be literally at my teacher's ashram. In fact, I was entering the water element itself. Where tears were always close to the surface, where emotion was overwhelming and drowning was a possibility. Where years, centuries, lifetimes of dammed up energy would rise to burst through the levees of illusion and flood every area. The seismic wave that had sounded from the ocean floor was gathering its inexorable momentum and water became the dominant element In my life, it was the beginning of seven years of tears. I didn't know that of course. (laughs) I was happy. I was excited. I had withdrawn from my contract at a major theater festival where I had worked for years with the blessing of those who had released me from it. I was ecstatic. I had the support of my husband. My calendar was wide open except for two upcoming training modules at my teacher's ashram, one in June and one in September. I was booking my flights, I was supplying myself with what I needed to travel like a backpacker and camp in the woods. I emailed my teacher's school and told them I was coming back for the next two modules and beyond. Gurudeva, one of the teachers in charge of logistics there and whom I'd met during my first training week, emailed me back with delight and sent me everything I needed to prepare for my next experience. There was a 40-day practice and a special diet to follow leading up to the training. I contacted my family in France and told them I was coming back in a couple of months. That was unheard of. Never had I made trips like that so close together. Never had I had the opportunity to see them so often. And I told them that I had made a decision to commit to this course of training in France and that I would be seeing them more regularly for the foreseeable future, which we all celebrated joyfully. I love my French family very deeply. When I was growing up we always saw each other regularly. Either we would go to Corsica or mainland France or on one occasion we even went to Algeria where my dad had grown up and where his brother my uncle still lived at the time with my aunt and my cousins or they would come to visit us in the United States we took road trips together. Once we did a family caravan from Virginia all the way up to Maine. I still remember details of that experience. Another time we traveled down to Orlando and the Florida Keys. It was my dad and his older brother, my uncle, my aunt, and their three kids, my cousins. And me and my brother and our parents, and sometimes our grandparents would be with us too in the U.S., or we would all stay with them in Corsica, where they lived for many years before moving back from Algeria to the south of France. There's a whole story there on that side of my family. They were Noir, Blackfeet. They were part of the colonizing power that was France in North Africa for many generations Algeria was the only home they knew. Some of my fondest and most profound childhood memories are of the time we all spent together as a family. There were the usual family dynamics of tension, of course. (laughs) Sometimes I was dimly aware of my father's frustration with his parents. But overall, I remember it as wonderful and carefree. There are smells that rocket me instantly back to that time, such as the smell of rosemary and the crushed, dry, sun-blasted herbs of the Garrigue and the Corsican Maquis, the cool dampness of my grandparents' cellar, and the smell of my cousins' bodies as we packed into a hot car together for a drive through winding roads. Inevitably, one of us children would get car sick to stop and pull over and clean everybody off. (laughs) I remember us with our heads together over a game, or cards, or in the pool, or at the beach, or taking a nap, or climbing in the hills, and the smell and the feel of their curly curly hair. Even today, as I kiss and embrace my cousin's hello and goodbye, the smell of them is as familiar and comforting to me as home and childhood, and triggers a kind of wild nostalgia. Nowadays, we see each other more regularly than in childhood, no longer oceans apart. I live in France now within accessible driving distance of this family network, and I can trace the fact that I do back to the decision I made to commit to my spiritual path and everything that it meant to do so. And everything that it meant to do so, which I couldn't possibly have foreseen or understood. We have this idea with the first big opening of awakening to the spiritual reality that underpins our life. I mean, it's so stunning that now that we're spiritual, life is going to be peaceful and happy. That even if our outer purpose isn't clear, there's a new sense of inner purpose now. We know why we've come into this life, to reunite with the spiritual dimension of ourselves, the what becomes secondary, And now we believe we have a key that will open the door to that elusive happiness, security, safety, and at-homeness we've always longed for. It isn't quite like that. It isn't like that at all, actually. I guess that's why the initial impact of an awakening experience whatever form it takes is so powerful because it has to carry you through what comes next until you are strong enough and have sufficient spiritual power to keep going through the Shaktipat. Shaktipat is a term that refers to the trials and tests that make you feel as if you've completely lost your way and that things are worse than they ever were even before. The doubt and uncertainty, disappointment, and the disillusionment that are inevitable as you continue to walk the path. We don't know that it's coming, and it's a blessing that we don't know, because otherwise it would be too daunting. To be forewarned and forearmed with this information is useful. If it doesn't discourage you from the spiritual path, not that I would discourage anyone, but once you get bit, nothing will stop you anyway... It's helpful to know that you're going to have to face your shadows. It's a non-negotiable aspect of universal law whereby everything gets brought up when you expose it to the light naturally. You see everything that's there that you didn't see before and it has to come up. It's absolutely essential. There's no way around it. We can see that globally in the world right now. The light is getting brighter in the world. And at the same time, we're seeing everything, all of the ugliness, and there is the exposure now of all kinds of shadows and hidden things that, well, they were always there, but the light as it gets brighter, makes it impossible not to see what needs to be processed so that we can move to a higher level of awareness, a higher level of consciousness. And of course this is true on the global level on the collective level because it's true on the individual level whenever i begin working with anyone on kundalini awakening i put that right out there and the eager student nods with acceptance yes i understand mm-hmm. because it's all still in the mind it's still a concept the mind believes that acquiring more knowledge or information is the answer and that it's all going to take place in the, le- at the level of the mind But that's not how it works. The spiritual path is like the peach that you've heard or read about, but never tasted. You don't know what you're facing until you face it. Then you're in it. At some point, I see their countenance change. And I know that they're beginning to discover that for themselves. I remember when I bought my first piece of real estate at 27, It was a studio apartment in New York City, definitely one of the smartest decisions I ever made. I was tired of paying rent and I had a little nest egg from money that my dad had put away for me and my brother when we were children. I decided to invest it in this little apartment. But I had no idea what it was like to buy property in New York City, even though back then it wasn't nearly as competitive to get into the market as it is now. I didn't know that I'd have to do a board package. I'd never applied for a mortgage. I was intimidated by every stage of the process. And my real estate agent was an absolute minimalist, let's say, in terms of his involvement in helping me. (laughs) He wasn't very compassionate or or sympathetic, not that he had to be. As I remember, he was more in the haranguing vein. (laughs) He would call me up, Claire, what are you doing? I need this. I need that. I was scared of him. Every time I got a piece of mail about something to do with the ongoing transaction, of course, this was before everything was digital, the contract signing, the loan, the board approval, the closing and so on, my stomach would tighten up into knots as I opened the envelope with the latest bit of information or instruction. It was this feeling like adult life was all too much for me. I was afraid of the responsibilities. I was afraid of everything having to do with money and looking at money. I had a belief that I wasn't smart enough to understand those things. I'm an artist. (laughs) There were a lot of limiting beliefs there and frankly, an unwillingness to grow up. That was what it all boiled down to. I had lost my father only a few years before and there was a part of me that unconsciously equated remaining a little girl with loyalty to his memory. Or maybe if I remain a little girl, he'll come back. I used to have dreams sometimes that he would come back, but he could never stay. He always had to leave. So growing up meant accepting his death and leaving him behind somehow. So there was a self-imposed limitation and a feeling of helplessness in the big bad world that crippled me in multiple areas of life. Somehow, I had enough awareness to notice the physical symptoms of nervousness whenever I opened the little mailbox cubby in my apartment building in Washington Heights, where I lived at the time, to retrieve whatever correspondence needed dealing with in the purchase of my studio on the Upper West Side. There was no one else to do it. And I guess that was good. I had no partner at the time. I didn't have anyone helping me. And I knew that it had to get done however much I wanted to avoid it. So I started talking to myself whenever the key went into the mailbox to open its squeaky little door. Whatever this is, I can handle it, I would say to myself. And I'd be going up in the elevator, opening the envelope, and I would be saying, whatever it is, I can handle it. I can handle it. Touches me to think that I supported myself that way back then when I was so unconscious. Months later, after I closed on the purchase, which was a studio in a lovely old townhouse on West 75th Street, and I had my own place, my very own place, for the first time. I looked back over the process and I realized that if I had known how much fear it would bring up for me, I probably would have talked myself out of making what seemed like a big bold move uh, at the time, the responsibility of paying a mortgage for the first time and all that, plus the renovation that I carried out next. But now that it was done, I was relieved. I was proud of myself. I knew I had grown from the experience. Looking back now on those early years of transformation, stemming from the decision to take the road less traveled, it's similar. Had I known what I would go through, had I seen or rather felt inner snapshots of how low I could go, it might not have looked like the answer to everything that it seemed. And yet somehow it also was. Those couple of months preparing to go back to France to continue the process with my teacher were blissful. I felt so blessed and fortunate. I joyously prepared for my journey. I felt liberated and strong. I was optimistic. I taught yoga classes and saved the money I made to pay for my trainings. I set up for my first ever camping tent in the backyard and spent a night there to test it out. I'd never been camping before. I didn't grow up, you know, with that kind of outdoorsy lifestyle. I eagerly anticipated the reunion with my family and coming together again with the group of students I had met back in March. I worked on my French, unearthing my old textbooks from the school days. I practiced my sadhana religiously and reread the transcriptions I had made of my teacher's lectures. Curiously, I found that the original power he had transmitted was not to be found in the words themselves. When I read them over, they were absent somehow of the feeling and the power, I realized there was some other medium deeper than or beyond the words through which I had received the transmission of spiritual wisdom. It was through the air somehow. It was contained in the prana. I longed to be in his presence again to soak up the wisdom that emanated from him during my last visit, I had become acutely aware that my French needed work, and as I mentioned, I had begun to dive into my old textbooks again to revive my vocabulary. I had spoken French or been around it continuously until about the age of 13, as my brother and I attended a French international school in Washington, D.C., where we grew up. But after our family moved to northwest Florida, we transitioned to an American public school for the first time, and that was the end of daily conversational French, although I did throw myself into Spanish with enthusiasm. Even though I was a double major in theater and French in university, it wasn't enough to keep me fluent or advance my level much. And suddenly I found myself unable to express the complexity of thought and feeling that I longed to share with my loved ones. My French was frozen in time at age 13 and I felt like that adolescent again, full of feelings that I couldn't express. My level of French was not the only thing frozen in time. Coming back to the old country, back in March, had revived old feelings, ancient feelings that I had been only dimly aware of began to thaw and drip into a trickle of tears. Something was starting. Previously in my travels to see my French family, I had been with one husband, then with my next husband, except for one occasion in between when I was in the middle of my divorce and I traveled alone to be with my cousins at Christmas. I was an open wound and I felt like the family failure. My cousins were lovingly supportive but didn't pry and I was incapable of comprehending the chasm of confusion I had fallen into, much less able to articulate my feelings in French or in English for that matter, about the rapid disintegration of the marriage, which I was ashamed of. After all, some of them had been at the wedding only a few years before. I felt like the typical flighty, narcissistic American actress whose life was a mess. (laughs) <laughs> In the years thereafter, it felt like my interactions with my cousins, though always lively and fun, remained superficial. After all, everybody had 2.5 kids now. Life was buzzing and jam-packed with activities and to and froing. It was hard to find stillness and to have a grown-up conversation. Circling back again to March on that first fateful trip that had triggered this major decision... As the wheels of the plane touched down on the tarmac at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, I was seized by a feeling of portent. Tears jumped into my eyes inexplicably, and I felt some kind of trembling in my heart. Whenever I had traveled to France in previous years, I had been afraid of not speaking well enough, afraid of censure, afraid of being looked at the wrong way, afraid in general. I always felt the need to hide the fact that I wasn't fully French (laughs) to try to pass myself off as one of the locals and I feared discovery I was afraid to ask questions my husband was frustrated with me once when we were in Paris and I made excuses so as not to have to ask a French person a question what's your problem he looked at me quizzically just ask you're the one who speaks the language not me I would clam up, make excuses, and do everything I could not to approach someone if I wasn't absolutely sure how to phrase something perfectly, because I didn't want to risk making a mistake that would reveal me as not French. I know this sounds completely ridiculous and probably insane, but because I spoke with no accent, I could begin a conversation with someone and they would assume I was French, but before long, I would miss half of what they said if they spoke too fast or make some basic mistake that had the person looking at me all of a sudden as if I was stupid or strange. It was as if you walked into a clothing store speaking perfectly good English, only to forget the word for belt and say, uh, you know, the, the thing that goes around your waist, uh, what's it called? <laughs> it always freaked me out and I wanted the earth to swallow me up. That's how afraid I was to make a mistake. This severe intolerance for any failing... And the inability to make simple human connections because of extreme perfectionism was baffling to my husband. It was a manifest, I mean, he'll talk to anybody, <laughs> whether he speaks the language or not, he will go, you know, mime and figure something out and, and speak uh, English with a French accent. And, and the person might take him for, you know, a, a, a nut job at the beginning, but within 30 seconds, they're absolutely charmed. And a connection has been made, a human connection connection. (laughs) And I was missing this completely. This was a manifestation of pridefulness, my pridefulness. I refuse to make a mistake. I don't want to be wrong. I wouldn't own it. That's more pride. So it was projected onto the world. And I saw other people as critical, censuring and apt to humiliate me at any moment. Of course, that was what I was. I felt exposed whenever we don't own something, it owns us. If we deny our character flaws, we have no choice but to project them onto others in the world. My husband would say, you're so defensive. And I'd say, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm serious. I did not see the irony or the humor in that. That's how blind we can be to our own defects. Owning these traits doesn't mean you wallow in them or create a story around them that makes you a bad person. It means you accept your humanity fully, and you don't take these traits personally. They belong to the mechanism of the ego. Remember, the ego's main program is survival. Survival at any cost. How is pridefulness a survival program? Well, It's all about defending a positionality. We're identified with our positions, my beliefs, my opinions, my story. It has all the glamour and specialness of being our own. (laughs) And therefore, if our position is taken down by somebody or we're made wrong to the ego, that's like death. If you're identified with that stuff and somebody shoots it down, You're the one who gets shot down, right? Because there's a conflation between the sense of self and the position. Isn't it clear from looking at the world that most people would rather be right than be happy? But something was different that time arriving in France because I was different. I had let go a lot of pride in the months leading up to this journey. And wherever I went from the moment the plane landed, people seemed to smile at me with kindliness. The feeling of being threatened or exposed was much diminished and I noticed it right away. Hmm, something feels different. (laughs) As I neared Montpellier on the high-speed train where my cousin Bertrand was picking me up and taking me to my aunt and uncle's for a brief pit stop before going to his home in Carcassonne, I again felt a fluttering of emotion as the familiar landscape began to appear and the light of the sun shone differently. I also felt a connection with my cousin's energy as if I could sense his presence before I saw him. In the drive from Montpellier to Carcassonne later that day, I gazed at the passing landscape as my cousin and I had a quiet conversation for the first time in years. In fact, it dawned on me that we had never had such a conversation as adults and the luxury of a two-hour car ride with no distractions. As we caught up on life, driving through vineyards and rows of plain trees, I had a simple revelation that this place and this relationship were as old as time and as familiar to me as myself. The wild nostalgia took hold. Along the way, we stopped in the town of Set, on the Mediterranean, where our grandparents are buried, and visited their graves. As we contemplated together in the cemetery, the conversation turned to spirituality and our shared longing for God. Looking into his dark eyes, so much like my own, I felt an immense wave of recognition, as if I had suddenly awakened from a long sleep and remembered that this being, in the form of a cousin, was a twin of the soul. We slipped in between the worlds for a moment and it all came back to me in a rush. It was like the one and only time I've experienced an earthquake. I was sitting in my car in bumper to bumper traffic on a California freeway. For a few seconds, everything that had seemed solid wasn't anymore. (laughs) The atoms of the material world seemed to float apart momentarily as a low frequency wave rippled through the belly of the earth. There was a suspension of the rules of reality, like momentarily slipping into another dimension. It was so strange. Similarly, my cousin and I went through a warp in the fabric of reality and spent the next few days In a sort of altered state beyond time, a flow of stories and smiles and silences, laughter and tears, like water rushing back into an ancient riverbed that could only be seen from space. Some long forgotten history of shared joy and shared sorrow beyond this life was revived. A few days later, at my other cousin's house in Grenoble, was another emotional reunion. Katun, as she's called, that's just a family nickname. She's like champagne, bubbly, bright. She's got this heart of gold, always game, always active, and willing to get her hands dirty. She was the one who had called me when my first marriage fell apart. When I heard her caring voice on the phone, so did I. She's always been the one who wanted to have the serious conversation about whatever was going on and get to the bottom of things. (laughs) And yet we had also spent many a late night laughing ourselves silly on the couch. She has one of those contagious laughs. And sometimes, you know, when you start laughing and you can't stop, she was the, the instigator of that in our family. Many years before, her husband's job at IBM had brought them to New York for two years while I lived there, which was like hitting the family fun jackpot. Now she was a successful physical therapist with three kids and seeing how her teenage boys bear hugged her with undisguised adoration made my heart burst with joy for all the love and warmth in her life, which was so obviously a reflection of her own generous nature. I realized I had so much to learn from her. Being with her for a couple of days straight after my soulful reunion with her brother, My cup was filled to overflowing with gratitude for the recognition of these soulmates and the intuitions about the many lifetimes we had shared. These joyful reunions felt like a rediscovery, like the scales falling from my eyes, like seeing these dear ones in a multidimensional light and this life as part of a continuum, picking up again where we had left off, karmically speaking, Remembering, rediscovering, reconnecting, renewing, reviving, recognizing all at once. It was as if I saw them for who they really were to me beyond form, just as I recognized my teacher instantly when I felt his energy enter the circle in the walking meditation. Of course, it was so clear, so simple. And it was directly from the heart all the tiniest moments of connection that I had ever felt with my cousins over the years without understanding where the intense emotion came from flickered through my mind like an old home movie and I connected the dots I knew why I had always loved them not because we were family not because we had been children together but because I had always Loved them. Beyond time and space. All of this emotional power and intensity coupled with the powerful awakening experience that I then had uh, when I met my teacher. All of this was the backdrop for my next trip to France coming back in June for the next module. I made the same family pilgrimage as before with the same intensity of feeling. And this time, leaving my uncle's house in Montpellier, a flood of tears burst forth from me as I said goodbye to him that frankly surprised me. It seemed to just erupt out of nowhere. One moment I was fine, and the next moment I was in tears. My uncle was always taciturn, sometimes severe, and I was a bit afraid of him as a child, never felt particularly close to him. He was hard to reach. He adored my father, though, and I never saw him lighter of heart than he was when they would joke around together. My father's death was devastating to him. As he got older and sicker with Parkinson's, he withdrew into deeper silence and impenetrability. And even though he never let down his guard, to me he was more vulnerable than ever. I was always aware that it might be my last chance to be with him, and I was determined to be a conscious witness to his departure from the earth plane, since I hadn't had the blessing of experiencing that with my father. «Ma fille, my girl», he said, as I hugged him goodbye and then suddenly a rush of energy came through from him to me and that was when the torrent of tears just shot up it was unstoppable. Intuitively it seemed to me that suppressed emotion in him found a channel for expression in me and rushed like water into the opening. It's only looking back now that I can see the primacy and symbolism of the water element throughout this narrative that I was living at the time and that's emotion when I finally arrived for the training module at the ashram I camped in my tent in the forest along with every most everybody else which we were encouraged to do in the summer months to be closer to nature and its power to heal and transform each morning we were told we were to go down to the river for ishnan cold water therapy before sadhana And believe me, that water was cold, an icy mountain river that I learned to love, even though I typically don't like the cold. But good student that I was, I would get up at 4 a.m., go down in the dark to the freezing cold river, flail around in there with a ton of resistance, and then change into my white sodna clothes and trudge up the hill to the big top, the giant tent where all our classes were held. One morning, about three days into the week-long module, the rains started. Here I had been imagining an idyllic, sunny June week in the Alps, running gaily through the hills like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music and having a magical spiritual transformation. (laughs) And instead, it turned cold and wet. I was aware of the steady driving rain beating down on my tent all night, and I didn't sleep a wink. When 4 AM came, I threw on my rain gear over my pajamas and I tried to protect my yoga clothes and sheepskin and my mat as well as I could. When I got down to the river, slipping and sliding the whole way, I was already soaking wet and so were my things, which I stashed under a tree in vain. And no one else was there at the river. What, I thought, I felt betrayed, then really dumb. Everyone else was staying dry in their tents, duh. And here I was like an idiot. I defiantly went into the river anyway, and then came out to a wet towel and wet clothes, which I put on, shivering and dripping. I trudged through the slippery mud to the big top for Satna with a wet mat and wet, stinking sheepskin, which I threw down on the floor with a slop and sat down, (laughs) utterly miserable and freezing cold. Let's just say I was not an experienced camper. Everyone else seemed to have it figured out, And one of my yoga buddies, a guy I became good friends with through the trainings, came over and said, What are you doing, girl? You're all wet. I burst into tears for what felt like the millionth time since my second arrival in France. And he covered me with his fleece jacket and put a comforting arm around me. Don't worry, he said. I'm not camping. I've got a room in the sheet and you can hang your wet things in there to dry out. And thank God because it continued to rain solidly for a full three days. I gritted my teeth and bore down to get through. The water was constant, dripping through the roof of the big top here and there to soak areas of the carpet where we practiced, blowing in from the sides and pooling in our shoes neatly lined up on the shelves at the entrance. It began soaking through the rain fly of my tent and rising up as an icy vapor from the earth through my sleeping pad. You couldn't get away from it. During the Kriyas, I would cry along with the rain, giving in to an inner misery that was perfectly reflected by the weather. My state wasn't caused by the weather. It was the weather. I learned over many modules at Le Martinet, the ashram, that the weather very often perfectly reflected the state of the collective, and we have unusual weather there. After the initial projections and idealizations of my first week of training, the honeymoon was over. The real emotional work was beginning only I had no idea what it was all I knew was I was crying constantly feeling lonelier than I had ever felt and wishing I could go home I wondered what I was doing there cut off from the magic of the first experience and desperate to find it again I was like what is this I don't know why I'm here anymore had I made a mistake did I turn my life upside down and i I, you know totally disoriented the last full day of the training the rain began to shift from steady to periodic during our afternoon yoga session as we were nearing the crescendo at the two-hour mark of a very intense and long kriya with long holds the wind suddenly howled sideways buffeting the closed curtains of the big top the sky opened up with a deafening roar that drowned out the music blaring through the speakers the big top was being pelted by hail we were all electrified and everyone rushed to the opening of the big top lined as it still was with dripping towels and jackets and socks hanging over the steel support beams on every side The hailstorm blew through with a whippingly violent intensity and was over within about another 30 seconds. Suddenly, all was quiet, but the sounds of dripping. We crept outside in the aftermath, all 60 of us. The low dark clouds were scudding by, giving way to high white puffy clouds, and the sun burst through with a stunning radiance. To crown the glory of the moment, a double rainbow appeared over the valley. We were dumbstruck with awe. My teacher came out of the big top to observe the scene with a hearty laugh. Somewhere in here was a language of perfect order and harmony spoken by the universe which I didn't yet have the subtlety to understand. But I knew that something was being reflected. Something had happened. Even if I couldn't articulate it, understand it or process it yet. I had my first audience with my teacher that week. He remembered me from March. I told him about my decision to withdraw from my contract so I could be here. And my commitment to doing the full course of training with him he listened silently and then asked me a few questions about my background and training I told him about doing my level one in India at Swamiji's ashram in Rishikesh my teacher smiled and he said "Ah, yes he's a friend of mine I saw Swamiji in my mind's eye blessing me with his hands in prayer from across the garden and the wave that had gone through me then. And I realized I had ridden that wave all the way here. His blessing had carried me to my teacher. Next time, I'll share more with you about the power of those private audiences that I've had with my teacher over the years, how they always planted a seed that grew in its own time as a felt and subjective understanding of spiritual truth. And I'll share with you how the high of a pivotal experience gives way to the reality of the work you have to do, how I then entered a dark wood where the direct way was lost. I'll see you next time. Meanwhile, walk in grace. Thank you for joining me in the grace space where you're always in the right place. If you love this podcast, I invite you to subscribe to it and submit a review if you feel called to do so. Also, be sure to sign up for my newsletter right here I look forward to spending this time with you again next week. Meanwhile, I send you love and blessings. Bye for now.